0: Hello and welcome to Bramcast, a podcast by the Bram Stoker Club of the University Philosophical Society, Trinity College Dublin. My name is Stephen O'Sullivan and I'll be your host for today. Today we're joined by Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Lemke is a professor of psychiatry and behavioural science at Stanford School of Medicine and is the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. In addition to her academic appointments, She is also a practicing clinician and a New York Times bestselling author. In 2016, she published Drug Dealer, MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. More recently, in 2021, she released Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Today, we discuss addiction. Dr. Lemke explains why, in today's world, we are all vulnerable to addiction and how the unprecedented amount of free time in the modern age offers a new near-universal risk factor for addiction. We discuss the link between pleasure and pain, how dopamine can dictate the two, the role of abstinence in treating addiction, and Dr. Lemke tells us that it's normal not to feel great all the time, that it's normal to feel bad sometimes. We then pivot to a college-oriented discussion. Dr. Lemke speaks to the usage of unprescribed amphetamines for study enhancement, the dangers that brings, and how it may undermine the neurological process of learning. Dr. Lemke talks about the viability of raising one's baseline levels of dopamine and how one can foster mental resilience for hard study tasks. Finally, Dr. Lemke offers a word of caution and skepticism about hallucinogenic and psychedelic drugs amid recent hype around their potential use in treating addiction. Dr. Anna Lemke, thank you very much for coming on to Bramcast. Thank you for inviting me. So how has your view of addiction changed over your career?
1: Mm, Great question. Um, First of all, to define addiction, it's the continued compulsive use of a substance or a behavior despite harm to self and or others. Over my career, I have become much more aware and much more appreciative of the extent to which people can get addicted to behaviors in the same way that they can get addicted to Drugs and alcohol, so that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is my realization that in the modern age, the age that we live in now, we are all vulnerable to the problem of addiction, something I don't think was as true 100, 200, etc. years ago. And the reason for that is because of the ways in which um, the world itself has become drugified.
0: Mm-hmm. And the the link the um, development of an addiction... Uh, you write in your book is uh, innately linked um, to you know the the pleasure that comes from the addiction well you know the short acute pleasure from consuming, but also the pain from thereafter. Could you explain that a bit maybe
1: Sure yeah so I mean w- we evolved over millions of years of evolution to reflexively approach pleasure and avoid pain. This is uh, based on highly conserved circuits that haven't changed across species over. You know, many, many millions of years, uh, and it's a great mechanism uh, for a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, where you have to work very hard up front to get the basics of life: food, clothing, shelter, finding a mate. But it's a terrible uh, mechanism um, for the world that we live in now. And in order to understand why, you have to understand the ways and w- the ways in which too much dopamine can lead to a kind of a chronic dopamine deficit state. And the way that I like to describe that is to imagine that in your brain there's a balance like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground, which represents how we process pleasure and pain. When we do something pleasurable, it tips one way. Pain, it tips in the opposite direction. Now, obviously, this is an oversimplification. There are many other complex mechanisms going on. Uh, people can experience pleasure and pain simultaneously, for example, when they're eating spicy food. But in its simplified form, uh, this is how pleasure and pain work in the brain. And one of the overarching rules governing that, pleasure, that pleasure-pain that pleasure balance is that the balance wants to remain level, or what neuroscientists call a homeostasis, such that with any deviation from neutrality, whether to pleasure or pain, our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance. And they do that first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So to give an example, I like chocolate. Chocolate releases dopamine, the reward neurotransmitter in a dedicated part of my brain called the reward pathway. My balance tilts to the side of pleasure. No sooner has that happened than my brain adapts to increase dopamine firing by downregulating dopamine transmission. Uh, not just to baseline levels of dopamine firing, because we're always releasing dopamine at tonic baseline levels, but actually below baseline into a dopamine deficit state. That process is called neuroadaptation. And I like to imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance, so they don't get off as soon as I'm level. They stay on until I'm tilted in equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that's the come down, the after effect, the hangover a blue Monday, or uh, at its most basic level, that in, that moment of craving, that, that moment of wanting to do it again as an expedient way, the most expedient way to restore a level balance, right? To get back to homeostasis. Now, if I don't indulge again, uh, those neuroadaptation gremlins get the message that No more incoming. They jump off the balance. Homeostasis is restored. But in the modern world, you know, we have so much of everything and it's so potent um, and it's so easy to get and everybody's doing it and it's culturally sanctioned and encouraged, et cetera, so that it's very hard to stop at just one indulgence. So we repeat again and again. And what happens when we do that over time is those gremlins start to multiply. They get bigger and stronger. Eventually, they're camped out on the pain side of the balance. And now we've changed our hedonic or joy step point. Now we need more of our drug in more potent forms and in larger quantities, not to get high, but just to level the balance and feel normal. And when we're not using, we're walking around uh, with a balance tilted to the side of pain experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. Furthermore, more modest pleasures that used to give, give us pleasure no longer work because they can't compete with all of those gremlins. Plus, we're much more susceptible to pain because we're walking around in pain.
0: So has this changed uh, over the past few decades as everybody's exposed to um dopamine driving and addictive stimulus because i'm not sure how prevalent it is now i'm sure it's to, to an extent prevalent but the idea of that addiction only happens to certain people as though there's an innate hereditary component that some people are born with and some people are not but it seems from what you're describing that if there is a hereditary component it's less um significant in the world we live in would that be accurate
1: yeah, I think what I'm trying to do for, for first of all let, let's back up for a second there's there's lots of epidemiologic evidence showing that people come into this world for varying degrees of with varying degrees of susceptibility to addiction and some people are much more susceptible to this problem than others and it's probably a complex polygenic innate inborn phenomenon. And we know that from family studies, from twin studies, mostly having to do with alcohol addiction, not so much other drugs or process addictions. But we can extrapolate that the same thing applies. Historically, we called that the addictive personality. Uh, In ancient times, people called it devil possession, right? There were all different kinds of ways to conceptualize that. Now we talk about a susceptibility to the disease of addiction. But it's also true, That as we expose our brains to highly reinforcing substances and behaviors, we change our brains over time in the very way that I described, entering this kind of chronic dopamine deficit state, such that now we're craving and needing that substance just to feel normal and to stop feeling pain. And that piece of it, that exposure or access piece of it, is definitely new and different and unprecedented and making all of us more vulnerable. Uh, to getting into these kind of uh, compulsive loops, that addiction vortex. And we see that playing out epidemiologically, too. So now we have, for example, demographic groups like women and older people who previously very seldom struggled with the specific phenomenology that we recognize as addiction and now are coming in in droves for the first time in you know, recording of these events, women and men Uh, uh, The ratio is one to one in terms of alcohol use disorder. That was not so generations for generations. It was five to one men to women, then it was two to one men to women. And for millennials, it's 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 one to one. Uh, We are seeing older people, you know, the, the sort of the sort of the wisdom was, well, if you were going to have a problem with addiction, you would manifest in your teens or early adulthood. Now we're seeing people who are able to control their consumption for most of their life, and then they get old and retire. And all of a sudden that, you know, kind of sort of uh, like weekend, you know, 7% THC pot that they consume their whole Now they're dabbing 90% THC and they're getting full-blown addicted at age 60, 70, 80. So, so that's where the landscape has really changed.
0: That's remarkable. Um, the, you know, to hear that at that age, you know, especially marijuana dabbing, so on, it's so associated with youth. But as that progresses to older ages, it's fascinating. But, may, could you talk about the aspect of leisure time, um, and the 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 link between the amount of leisure time one has and the propensity a to be addicted, but also to relapse on an addiction, be that behavioral or otherwise.
1: Yeah, thanks for asking about that. Hardly anybody asks me about that, but I I find it fascinating. So another thing that's unprecedented in our lives, in our modern lives, is that we have much more leisure time on any given day. So the average person, you know, in the 1800s worked six six days a week, 10 plus hours a day. Um, Many people lived in slavery and got no time off at all, except time to sleep and sort of take care of very minimal basic survival needs. Um, In the United States today, and this is similar in other uh, Western European countries, at least as far as I know, uh, you know, the average American works like five to six hours a day. This is on average, of course. Some people work much more. Some people work much less or not at all. And in 2050, you know, the average American is projected to work one to two hours a day. So what happened there? Well, we have a bunch of machines that are doing a lot of the work for us. Um, plus, you have a lot of people who are dropping out of the workforce. For example, for the first time in many generations, um, you've got young men dropping out of the workforce, not being gainfully employed at rates that, that are unprecedented. And some studies suggest that um, that these individuals are um, primarily playing video games. So, you know, th- this is a really really telling. So we have much more time on a given day. We're also living much longer than we ever have before. You know, people are living on average into their 80s. We have more centenarians, people living to 100 than ever before. As you know, up until about 80. 1850 uh, people on average lived till about age 30 or 40. There for, for certainly some long-lived people, but most of us died much earlier because of infectious processes or what have you. Um, now we're all living long. So, what what does this have to do with addiction? Well, I mean, we we all would have hoped that when we reached this kind of civilization state where we would have this wonderful leisure time that we would be <clears throat> reading philosophy and taking care of each other, and, you know, uh, I don't know, cleaning up the streets that we live in. (coughs) Excuse me. But instead, what it looks like is that we're spending a whole lot of time uh, consuming, uh, consuming drugs, consuming alcohol, uh, consuming material products, consuming digital drugs, um, consuming food. Um, So, and again, I just really think that In order to understand that, we have to understand some of our basic neurobiology and why it is that once we begin to ingest something that releases a lot of dopamine in the reward pathway, it is very hard to stop because this ancient mechanism was really, is is mismatched for the modern ecosystem.
0: Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you you write also about um, the importance of abstinence in trying to treat an addiction. It seems as though... um, the kind of forced abstinence that comes from uh, long working hours um, is often uh, like a, a pretty important step in treating a recovery.
1: Um, okay. So I think what you're saying is that by, by working hard, doesn't that protect us in some way from the problem of addiction?
0: Well, not necessarily, but um, in that, you know, if somebody is say unemployed and they have an abundance of free time, um, and the phone's right there; they're easy to want it. But if if you're working, say, in a supermarket, or you're working on a construction site, you know you'll you'll get needing, you'll get a given out to for going on your phone. So it's kind of this forced absence. The reason I talk about this is because you also write about how, um, you know, during prohibition, um, alcohol um problems uh, plummeted. And like probably not that I'm advocating for prohibition or you know universal <laughs> abstinence, but the point I'm making is that it, it does seem like a very important if. Underrated um, aspect in uh, you know preventing and uh, treating addictions. I'm asking, is that fair? I wonder.
1: Okay, great. So. You know, we talked about certain risk factors for addiction, innate inborn risk factors, um, but one of the big risk factors that, that people don't often appreciate is simple access to our drug of choice. If you live in a community where your drug is readily available and you have lots of leisure time and disposable income to acquire that drug or the drug is free, you're more likely to use it and in using it, change your brain and get addicted to it. But how to intervene is is difficult because I mean just want to going back to your idea well people could just if we, they just had jobs but the truth is that it depends on what kind of job if you have a job that's dehumanizing then you can get into this very difficult kind of play hard work hard phenomenon or even if the job isn't dehumanizing but you work a lot where then people they, kind of organize and structure their time using rewards to do so. And that, I would say that's a very common thing for modern folks. Like when I'm done with this, I will get to, you know, look at my phone or eat a cupcake or smoke a joint or, you know, have a glass of wine or whatever it is. We, we kind of compartmentalize our days. And if, if we have the kind of work that is really stressful or really dehumanizing. What I mean by dehumanizing, kind of a la Karl Marx, like the end product is far removed from the work itself. Um, you know, then 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 we don't come out of that difficult uh, activity of work feeling uh, rejuvenated, refreshed as if we've contributed. We don't get to rest on the satisfaction of that having been done. We fly into wanting to reach for something to soothe ourselves, Um, there's a really classic rat experiment in which rats were, um, um, trained to know that if they pressed a lever, they could get an injection of cocaine. Rats will press a lever, a lever for cocaine till exhaustion or death. And that's essentially our animal model for addiction. If you then remove the cocaine and, and the, the, from that paradigm, the rat will eventually stop pressing the lever. That, in other words, that behavior will extinguish. But if you then expose a rat to that same rat to a very painful stimulus, like a very painful foot shock, which is a common, uh, common painful stimulus in these experiments, the first thing the rat will do is run over to the lever and wildly stop pressing it. You know, in an effort to get back to some kind of uh, homeostatic equilibrium. So.
0: Very good. I, I I suppose I should clarify. I didn't mean that like, you know, people that dishes should just get jobs. It was more of a ponderance of um it's an added, you know, you know, when you get trapped in like a bad loop mm-hmm. of whether that be socioeconomic deprivation, these things pile up. Um, just, just in case anybody thought it was oh oh, a...
1: oh absolutely. No, and these are you know, these are and thanks for that clarification. I, I know what you meant, and these are hard things. Like even in clinical care. You know, we'll have patients who will come in and want, and sometimes ask us to put them on disability, right? For so they don't have to work, and it's a hard judgment call because sometimes some patients are sick enough that they really do need to go on to disability so they can focus on getting better. For other patients, the loss of structure that work provides would actually make them worse, especially if then they're not they're not using that time to engage in treatment. So these are these are complex and nuanced things. And I knew what you meant.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Um, you also write at the end of one of your chapters, the reason we're all so miserable may be because we're working to avoid being miserable. Can you maybe speak to um, the disavoidance and often the, 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 the seemingly um, chemical or drug, uh, the use of chemical or drugs as avoidance for uh, behavioral uh, either addictions or, you know, mental illness, so on and so forth?
1: Well, this is deeply baked into our culture, right? This idea that if I'm not happy, there's something wrong with me, I must have a mental illness, which in, in which case I should go see a psychiatrist. That psychiatrist has primarily been trained to prescribe happy pills to me in some, some form or another. Um, or if I don't go see a psychiatrist, I can, quote unquote, self-medicate with substances or other behaviors, because surely my unhappiness is something that shouldn't be allowed to stand. It's something that is bad. It's something that's not normal. It's not what healthy, normal people experience. And that's you know that's a great, great myth, because life is hard. And uh, I, I think all humans experience it as a struggle. With uh, you know better and worse moments, but this this trope that uh, you know if we're not happy we're sick or that if we experience pain we're setting up ourselves up for more pain in the form of some kind of psychic scar, contributing to things like post traumatic stress disorder. This is a very modern concept. You know, as recently as you know, 150, 200 years ago, the, the culture was infused with a very different notion of suffering. Uh, suffering was thought to confer physical benefits. For example, in the 1850s, the leading surgeons of the day did not want to adopt general anesthesia uh, before doing surgery because they believed that their patients would heal faster uh, if they experienced pain during surgery. And as it turns out, there's now evidence from today uh, showing that when we give opioids uh, to people uh, perioperatively, we may in fact slow down the healing process. But you know, e- even more so, you know, there for most of I think human existence, there's been a sort of general acceptance, uh, you know, especially in a spiritual world, that su- suffering uh, confers some sort of positive gain. It's, it's it's a source of important information. We don't think about it that way anymore, and I think that has really contributed to our tendency to want to look for some kind of quick fix in the form of a pill.
0: Yeah, it was certainly an Irish thing. The Irish had um, a very long uh, history of embracing pain for not the positive reasons that you just, you know, did. it wasn't normal pain, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> well, maybe... and that,
1: you know, just to make point that can also go too far, right? Yes. I mean, so, you know, there there are sort of unintended consequences and bad things on both sides.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Maybe that's a good point to jump into a kind of student focused question. And that's, it seems to be ever growing more prevalent. I know I have friends in the States and it seems to have been the thing for quite a while, but there's more evidence in Irish campuses as well, where say Adderall isn't readily available, but people taking um, Adderall and focus enhancing drugs, or, you know, that's what they're using them for, whether they're clinically for that purpose, um, to cram before an exam. Um, Could could you talk about maybe um, the deleterious effects of doing so, as obvious as that might sound?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, stimulants, amphetamines, and other stimulants release a whole lot of dopamine all at once in the reward pathway, invariably followed by this compensatory dopamine deficit state. A huge vulnerability for addiction to stimulants. Now, not everybody who uses stimulants for performance enhancement will get addicted to them, but probably it's going to pan out to be about ten to twenty percent will. Furthermore, I really question the type of learning that is happening uh, when people, you know, cram at the end with the use of stimulants. I mean, even neurobiologically, um, it makes me wonder, um, you know, whether or not in those you know, insight and knowledge for the long-term are being acquired. Now, maybe the person who's taking stimulants doesn't care. They just want to, you know, do well on that exam and it's relatively mercenary and they're not really trying to learn. But, um, you know, I I think people should consider that, you know, as they're thinking about that way of of sort of getting work done and studying. There's a study uh, that shows that if you Um, put rats in a very complex maze with a lot of interesting things to explore, and you slice their brains open afterwards, you will see uh, an intense arborization of dopamine-releasing neurons in the nucleus accumbens, which is the reward circuitry, akin to what you would see uh, with a single injection of dopamine. In other words, learning is a source of dopamine. Um, If you then pre-medicate those rats with stimulants, um, and then release them in the maze, and then uh, slice their brains, you actually don't see that same arborization. So somehow uh, the drug, the stimulant, usurps the plasticity, um, probably because its own effect on that synapse is so overwhelming that there's no there's no possibility then for the brain to be plastic beyond that. So I think, you know, that that's part of it. But even from a kind of subjective phenomenological perspective, um, you know, we we see I see a lot of uh, folks who are diagnosed with ADHD put on stimulants early on, um, you know, still using stimulants in college to study, and or or in their lives to do work, and then really um, develop a kind of identity about themselves, uh, a pathology oriented identity. I'm a person who can't focus or get work done or be smart without this pill. And I just think that is such a shame because it really fails to celebrate the different kinds of brains that we have and the ways that we need all of the all of the different ways of thinking and being uh, in order, you know, to, to make the world go round. And I, 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 I feel sad that people who may maybe have what we call attention deficit disorder, which I would call drifters and dreamers, um, you know, shoehorn themselves into jobs that are not really suited to them, and and so therefore can't really thrive, and then are dependent on a certain type of pill uh, in order to be able to function. I, I wish that both our school system um, and you know the world at large would make room more room for the great gifts that drifters and dreamers have to contribute.
0: For sure, it's it it does make very little sense when you think about it as to why such a nuanced topic like learning and the ability to learn is pigeonholed into a binary I can learn or I can't learn.
1: Right. It's really sad, really sad. People sort of, again, just whittling themselves down into this uh, very small space in the world.
0: Maybe you could answer, um, or if I could pose the question, not necessarily um, exclusively um, for people with uh, attention deficit disorder, but broadly, you know, there's this large amount of... um, Limbic friction, I think, is the is the word that's often used, or the term, that the things that we most want to achieve, maybe in a restful state, like we put them off so much, you know, through, it requires a lot of limbic friction. There's uh, immense procrastination, Um, you know, obviously in the context of college, that's, you know, not want to get the degree, you want to get the top grade, but you don't want to, it's hard to put in the work. Why is that? Why is there this disconnect between um the goal that seems universally like, yes, this is the goal we want, but the effort... You're saying, maybe not
1: well, I think some of this is is again like a, a a characteristic of modern work, which is that much of this work is very solitary, so we're really expected to sort of buckle down on our own to make these things happen. And the work is incredibly disembodied. and we are really we are bodies, right? we're We're not just supertentorial minds, we're bodies. And when, especially for people who are high energy and physically restless, um, you know, when they don't respect the needs of the body and then just sit in mind and then try to get this kind of mind work done, you know, it doesn't go very well. We really have to respect the body, take care of the body, maybe even exhaust the body uh, so that we can be still enough for long enough to focus the mind to, you know, get this kind of uh, other kind of work done. and it's hard to do alone. I mean, it is really hard. But again, I think it's the fact that we are doing so much of this work alone. Uh, We're not sort of moving in these tribes uh, toward this common goal, which is also a physical goal, uh, you know, which is also immediate for our survival. So much of the work we do now, too, really requires an intense capacity for delayed gratification, right? I'm going to study uh, this topic, you know, every day for the next six months, and then I'm going to sit for the exam. Like, that's hard. That is just frankly hard. Um, so I think kind of, again, acknowledging the extent to which it's really difficult, and then trying to remember the body and, and, and try to get support uh, with from other people, do it collectively. And and frankly, just acknowledge too that some people just innately have a much greater capacity to do that kind of work than others. But it doesn't mean the ones who can't do it are somehow wrong-brained, right? It's just a different kind of uh, brain.
0: Absolutely. That's a very important point. Um, what are the best behaviors? Um, you, you alluded to maybe exercise there, uh, but what are the best behaviors to foster that kind of... Um, Uh, mental resilience for doing the delayed gratification uh, tasks and maybe, yeah, particularly with respect to study like we spoke about.
1: Yeah. So, well, I mean, again, you know, any kind of embodied thing that that sort of takes care of our body, but is also effortful. um, You know, when you think back to this pleasure pain balance, it turns out when we intentionally press on the pain side, for example, by exercising or through ice cold water immersion or intermittent fasting, things like these are very physical stuff. Those neuroadaptation gremlins actually go and hop on the pleasure side and we get our dopamine indirectly. By paying for it up front, so these are—I um, mean, these are things that we prescribe, right? We prescribe daily exercise. We prescribe sometimes we prescribe ice cold water baths to people, or putting their plunging their face or their hands in ice cold water. We so don't there's, usually.
0: There's thorough evidence behind that, so it seems that's just not one of these internet facts. Yeah,
1: right. You know, there's actually evidence showing that when when people immerse themselves in ice cold water. Um, initially there's no dopamine spike but if you measure dopamine levels over the next hour they raise gradually sometimes 300 400 percent above baseline and then they remain elevated for hours after after getting out of the ice bath before going back down to the level position and importantly you never go into that dopamine deficit state that that then drives the cravings to do it again which means that every time you before you get in the ice bath you don't want to do it right uh, every time before you exercise you don't really want to exercise, but afterwards you feel better, which is why people are also much less susceptible to get addicted to ice-cold water baths or addicted to exercise, although I will say we do see exercise addiction. Uh, And then the intervention is similar. People have to abstain from that for a while. There are also a lot of mindfulness and meditative and prayer practices that can kind of um, quiet and settle the mind and allow people uh, the ability to sort of um, you know observe these processes as they're happening, that can be very helpful too. And psychotherapy, which again, is sort of like a mindfulness or a meditation with somebody else.
0: so this is this is an achievable goal to elevate one's uh, baseline level of dopamine. Is, is that correct?
1: I think it's achievable, but extremely difficult in the world that we live in now, where we're constantly being triggered to consume. And by the way, when we're reminded of our drug of choice, for example, when that phone in our pocket vibrates and we know we got a notification or a text or something, that also releases a little bit of dopamine, followed by a little mini dopamine deficit state setting us up for the craving that makes it very difficult to resist the urge to look at our phones. And that's why it's so important to engage in self-binding strategies where we actually put both literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice. So this is things like you know, powering the phone down. So it's literally not receiving or transmitting. It's amazing what that does to our phone awareness um, in terms of the mental preoccupation we have with checking it Um, or things like grayscaling the phone so that it's not as potent and doesn't release quite as much dopamine or things like getting alcohol or potato chips or cannabis out of the house so that if I got the urge to use, I would have to actually go to a friend's house or go to the store or something like that. We really have to kind of, we can't expect ourselves to constantly be triggered and resist those triggers. We have to kind of insulate ourselves from the world that's chasing us down to consume these products.
0: Very good. Um, What, in your opinion, or do you find is the most pernicious misconception about dopamine?
1: Um, well, I would say that, you know, a common misconception is that dopamine is only triggered by quote-unquote pleasurable substances. Um, it, um, you know, depending upon a person's unique wiring, um, you know, so for some people, uh, like immediate pain can, can, can trigger dopamine. Um, it's also true that dopamine is very sensitive to novelty. Um, which is why people can get addicted to the news and doom scrolling. It's also sensitive to quantification, hence the likes and the ranks um, make those things worse. So it's it's not it's not necessarily just a pleasurable stimulus. It's it's really the neurotransmitter that's saying, hey, what's going on right now is important for your survival, so you need to pay attention. And then of course, addiction is the co-opting of that survival drive with things that are not actually good for us. Uh, but our, our brain fails to see the difference. So I think that's that's one one thing that's important to recognize.
0: Cool. Um maybe to round off the conversation I had a couple more questions about addiction just as we're conversing here. You distinguish between um guilt and shame in the book um when you know describing addiction and trying to treat it. Could you explain that because I I think most people on the surface level use them almost synonymously.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, so um well there people have made distinctions before between guilt and shame primarily along these lines um guilt is a, a feeling that you have when when you know you've done something wrong but you don't feel yourself that you are like a a shameful or you know horrible person whereas shame is this feeling that that I, you know i myself am I'm a horrible person so that that's the standard differentiation but that that's not I don't really think that, that that's all that useful because I think when people feel shame or guilt, it's the same feeling, right? It's it's really a gut punch of an emotion uh, combined with the fear of detection and then the fear of shunning or abandonment if others should, should find out. Um, it's a very, very powerful emotion. And to me, the difference there is not between guilt and shame, but really how the community responds. Um, And and so I've defined that as like the difference between destructive or malignant shame and what I call pro-social shame. And the the truth is that if we didn't feel shame for certain actions, we wouldn't be motivated to change them. So shame can be a very important pro-social and necessary emotion. But in order for it to function in a pro-social way... um, once we've been t- detected, we have to be given a path for making amends and changing that behavior. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous does so well, right? So when people relapse, uh, they're not kicked out of the group. In fact, their relapse becomes a part of the club goods, part of the value, as others who haven't relapsed see that person and go, you know, there before the grace of God, go I. Plus, that person who's relapse is then given very specific steps for how to get back into recovery, um, so that's pro-social shame, you know, at work. Whereas destructive shame would be where we've done something wrong. We've been same emotion. We're you know we're found out, but then we're essentially isolated, shunned, told that we don't talk about that. We don't want to hear that. And that's what I see happening in some faith-based organizations that purport to want to care for the the sick and 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 the hungry and 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 whatever. Um, But then when it really comes down to it, don't, don't really want to hear about that stuff, want people to be like happy and, you know, uh, because I believe or whatever, my life is great. So it's, it's very interesting how the, I mean, this isn't obviously, this is a gross generalization, but people are leaving faith-based organizations in droves, at least in the Northern Western world. and um you know maybe part of that is because it's not as much a place where people can show up as messed up as they are whereas in aa the whole point is that you're messed up so um anyway just a hypothesis
0: absolutely no that you 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 preempted my my the follow-up question there about pro-social shame because um again just you know like you said it's it may be kind of an underrated aspect of when when radical honesty i think isn't you know a common way of putting it to you mentioned that um one more question about um the the, the mechanisms maybe of addiction i'm sure you've been put this to, to, to this question before um but there was a, when during the vietnam war just for listeners that don't know um there was a very high usage rate of heroin among us soldiers i think lee robbins put it at as high as four percent at one time and very high dependence but that didn't translate to the addiction coming home which I'm, which is very very surprising here because it, when one is addicted to heroin at least you know in Ireland the states the western world it's v- next to impossible to get off obviously there are but it's very very difficult to so why the huge gap between the difficulty of getting off it uh, when one is addicted to it in their maybe their home country and yet the soldiers that were in Vietnam didn't
1: oh that's easy uh, it's, it's access. So, you know, when, when they were in Vietnam, they were, that was the, the golden triangle, you know, opium and heroin was everywhere and, and cheap. So it was easy to get and, and everybody was using it. And when, when those soldiers came back home, back to the United States, that was at a time when heroin, well, heroin still illegal, but it was hard to get, uh, people were, uh, there were serious legal consequences for those who were, uh, using or dealing, um, and that was a time before prescription opioids were readily available. So, you know, you, they came home and they couldn't get it. And when they couldn't get it, they stopped using it. Um, and, and you know, we see that again and again. You know, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, uh, the time between about 1920 and 1930 in the United States uh, called Prohibition when the uh, sale, importation, distribution, of alcohol was made illegal. Um, you know, All people remember about that is that it created the kind of speakeasy black market for alcohol. What they don't often realize is that it decreased uh, alcohol-related liver disease by 50%. It decreased the rates of public drunkenness. And, and those changes lasted uh, well into the 1950s and 60s, when again, the easy access to alcohol, especially now highly potent forms um, have have contributed to unprecedented high rates of alcohol use disorder, so you know access it, it's it's a big one.
0: Okay, but I was I, I, I think it was Kurz um, the 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 online content creators, um, science content creators, that they, they put forward the one of the hypotheses, or maybe it was somebody else's that it was the return to the kind of the better environment that it was the uh, chronic stress. Of Vietnam, do you think there's there's substance to that hypothesis, or uh, is oh sure
1: is it- yeah sure I mean you know obviously you know the, they're not killing people or at, at threat of being killed and all of that too, but you know once people get addicted or regularly using a substance, even if their immediate stressor goes away, it's still hard to stop using that substance. Um, so uh, again, I, I do think that we almost spend too much time thinking about like the psychological um sort of stress related parameters of addiction and not enough time appreciating that like people get addicted because the stuff is addictive right and when you it's readily available and you use it a lot it changes your brain
0: very good uh, final question now what is the most uh, exciting uh topic of research in, in, in addictive, um, psychiatry, um, and what are you excited about the results that might yet come that you're looking forward to?
1: Um, you know, I'm really excited about the, the growing, um, online communities where people are helping each other, um, get into recovery, not even necessarily, um, you know, from traditional substances, but just conceptualizing a life of recovery and what it means. Um, and it, since the pandemic, that's been something that's really grown. And I'm excited about that kind of the the growth of that mutual help um, thing. I, I I'm not excited about. Um, Hallucinogens and psychedelics, which is probably what you were hoping I was going to say, and what everybody else. No, is actually, excited. but uh, if you <laughs> like,
0: to, I I didn't even <laughs> think everybody, that. Everybody everybody
1: else is excited about that, but I'm very skeptical that that's something that, you know, that you would use, uh, you know, a handful of times would really make a difference for a chronic, relapsing and remitting disease like addiction. Not to mention that that the psychedelics themselves have the potential for addiction. Anything that changes the way we feel that quickly. Um, is something that people who are vulnerable to addiction are going to gravitate to. And we're, of course, seeing that now. So yeah, I mean, you know, there people are, are, the basic science is interesting. Um, You know, I I hope that continues. But I I do think that like looking harder at the psychosocial factors, you know, purpose, meaning, community connection, um, those are going to be important.
0: Very good. A good word of caution to end on. Dr. Anna Lemke, thank you very much for coming on to Bramcast.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your show.
0: That was our conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke. If you enjoy the podcast, please like and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening to Bramcast.